welcome to Helpful Social Work. Social work has the power to change people's lives for the better. This podcast aims to help you learn, think and act with integrity so people who need social work get the help that will transform their lives. I'm Jo. And I'm Jerry. And we got saw a lovely message on Facebook from Jessica Taylor. Jerry. Um, I might read it out, actually. I love your podcasts. I'm studying a master's in social work at Sheffield, and some of the things from the last podcast you released were really informative. I've shared your page on our students' page so everyone can check you out. Please can you do a podcast on the gap between the Children Act and mental capacity? It's something I'm really interested in and would love a professional opinion on it. Take care. And I believe we're um, going to do something about that, Jerry. Yeah, we thought we might try and introduce a listener's request where we attempt to answer a query. So in this case, it'll be the gap between the Children Act and mental capacity. Um, so we'll we'll do that at the end of this podcast and see how it goes. And then if other people have requests, we can always try and add those in as well. I think it's a great idea. I just checked our stats and we're on nearly 25,000 downloads. That's across That's a, a lot of crazy, episodes. Isn't so. it? Yeah. <laughs> well, well, it's good because, I mean, I know that we get a lot from them and we really enjoy thinking and learning about the topics together. It's so good just to think as widely as you can about social work and lift your head, I guess, from the day to day. So I'm glad other people are finding it the same way. That's fantastic. Yeah. So, so this, this mm, oh, you go. Yeah, this week is a B podcast. And so we're going to be looking at what we can learn from other disciplines. And that's uh, where we aim to reflect on ideas that can cast a light on social work and consider the implications of, of what the way other professions might go about their work. And because we've just talked about review, it seemed logical to talk about history as a profession. And partly this was chosen because I did a history degree quite a long time ago now and although it was mostly about the 14th 15th and 16th centuries actually it did come in very handy when I went to do social work because there's a lot of parallels to how things currently are in terms of kind of social issues and the way that political powers kind of jostle and the impact of religion um, hierarchies migration all those kind of things haven't changed a great deal actually in the last I 600 700 have, years <laughs> I've been watching something called Timeless um, on TV, which is kind of a junk TV show that me and my family enjoy. And um, in it, they travel to the past. And I've got to say, I really hope we have got some things better than the 14th, 15th and 16th century. We've just watched The Witch Hunts. Yeah, well, the, the, so. the world is making progress, I think. Um, but learning from the past is really crucial. And also, you know, when you study another place in depth, so I studied the Russian Revolution in quite a lot of depth. And that kind of gives you the chance to think about how a place and a people that initially might seem quite distant can be quite similar once you get to know them, once you get to know the place. Mm. So it does, you not only get the chance to understand somewhere else and some when else better, but it does then help you understand yourself better as a result. Yeah, I mean, to be serious, I, I do think that understanding history is one of the critical approaches in social work assessment. Um, we really need to be able to use our curiosity about another person's journey and what has shaped and influenced them up to this point. And that includes the journey of their parents, because, you know, it's your parents' parenting that impacts on you so much. So it's looking back and back um, to try to understand the skills, the beliefs and the feelings that people are trying to bring into the future with them. So for me, history is the backstory of our life. 
It's the backstory of the context we're born into and we live into, and it's a bag full of past responses and beliefs that will actually influence tomorrow's behaviour. So I think it's a, it's a really valid thing to be looking at and thinking about. So it's interesting because that works on an individual le- uh, level, but also on a social and global level, doesn't it? Absolutely. You've got to think about the society that people are acting into, haven't you? So we do have formal definition, which is where we usually start. And actually, there's quite a lot of different um, ways the word history is used. It's used as a chronological record of events. Um, a formal written account of, of kind of natural phenomena, for example, history of volcanoes. Uh, it's a branch of knowledge that records and analyzes past events, which social work is as well, actually. Um, and then it's also the events themselves and the aggregate of those past events. So we use it to say the history of this thing, but also history in general. Mm. We also use it as a kind of signifier of interest so a house yes. with history or a person with history, that kind of thing. Yeah. And sometimes we use it to say we're done with that. Like that's history. Mm. Uh, so that's quite interesting as well. And it all comes from this word um, historia in Greek, which has originally got even older roots in um, Indo-European languages. Um, and that's related to both to the action of inquiring and also the idea of someone as a learned person. Hmm. Historical kind of meant a learned person. So, and I guess, yeah. well, sorry, it made me think. Of course, it was so important before books, and especially you know our now our um, age of technology. People told verbal histories, didn't they? You kept your histories, and, and anyone who could actually explain the past and use it to explain the future was really valuable. Mm. And I think that sense of history as wisdom or learning mm, it's mm. also really relevant to our work isn't it because we can get Absolutely. so far with the stuff we know in general but when we know a particular history or story we can be a lot more wise um, and also they the definition of history includes two things that are specifically related to the way history is used in health so you have a patient's history which is their general medical story mm. background and also a history of an illness or a history of particular behaviours is used as a kind of pattern. Mm. Um, and we do have that quite a lot in referrals that we get, don't we? This person has a and, history and we, of whatever. Yep. And we would use both those ways of looking at history and assessment in child protection, definitely. Yeah, I mean, history, when you talked about history, you know, that idea of um, history being something that's past, finished with, done with now. I think actually, certainly in um, the child protection system, that is definitely not the experience of parents. Mm. Um, Parents feel the weight of history is always with them. When we do a chronology of a family, often going back generations, we tend to make a list of all the difficult and distressful things that have occurred in that family over many years. And sometimes, if we're not careful, we end up just compiling a negative history Mm. so we don't put enough balance in it. I'm not saying we shouldn't do it. I think that actually it's really important that we use this tool. But we drag this history into every meeting and it can really distort the views of people. It can limit their chance for a healthy identity and it can be used to predict the future in a way that isn't always helpful. So... 
you know, there's an idea that people will do today what they did yesterday unless there's a compelling reason or interruption to stop them from doing that. And this truism is often applied to children, young people, adults and families in social care. And it can kind of result in the wholesale dismissal of a person's potential. And it's what, um, is it Laverne said about, um, you know, when you record a person, you you oh, narrow you them. them. Yeah, you narrow you who they are. You limit them. Mm. You narrow who they are. So there's something for me about using history judiciously and carefully. Mm. I agree with you. I think we do need to use it really critically. And actually, the first thing that you made me think of is that in adult services, I think typically we haven't used it enough. And we've tended to be very much about the here and now and the future rather than the person's whole story. And that particularly, I think, has applied in older people services where there's quite a treadmill of seeing mm. a person doing what we need right now and not properly recognising their potential. But equally, telling, get, writing someone's story, gathering someone's story isn't enough, is it? Because it depends on what you pick out. Well, we're going to talk a little bit about what we can transfer from history. And the first thing I think we've already sort of touched on, which is that it's a transferable discipline, understanding mm. how someone's life has developed or how a society has developed or how a culture has developed and recording and analysing past events, which are two of the bits of the definition of history, are completely relevant to what we do in social work. Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the things that we can learn from historians is how to verify facts and use interpretation of the things we surrounding that person to make assumptions that are reasonable, that have an evidence base. You know, and we see this kind of thing in writings where people imagine what life would have been like for a certain profession or class of people based on what's in the environment. And a good example of that for me, of a, you know, being a bit of a Viking nut, of course, at the Jorvik Viking Centre. It's so Cumbrian. I know. Based on the artefacts and the writings from other similar settlements at similar times, they've recreated a street scene complete with characters carrying out their daily life. And the ability to place people in a context and understand how that context would dictate some of their daily movements and choice, I think, can be really helpful in social work because it helps us to really examine and understand the communities that people we work with live in. And so we can then understand the limits and resources they might have at their disposal and some of the things that are constricting them or stopping them from behaving in different ways. And so we can place some of our interventions into a systems level as well as at the individual level. And I think history shows us how we can do that in an evidence-based and fair way. Yes, that um, resonates with the idea of transferable skills. So I've just been doing some work with uh, a sixth form student who's, which is the, the top years in English school for those people in other countries, um, who's looking to apply to study history at university. And one of the things we looked at was the kind of capabilities that the university were looking for. And they're quite similar to social work capabilities. But the thing that you've just talked about relates to a particular one, which is historical imagination, which I was a bit surprised to see because although history is an art, it's generally put as an art in universities, it does try and have a kind of method and an approach and a, um, mm. a science to the way that you go about it. And um, that idea of historical imagination almost seems contrary to that, but it isn't in, t in the way that you were just talking about it, where you're saying once we know what we can know about a time or a place, let's try and really imagine what it would be like and what the implications mm. of that would be. So it's that 
analysis of the implications, which would include using our emotions and our feelings and our own experience as well. Um, that that was that Jorvik Viking Centre, but I think it's a really great um, example. Um, and then the other kind of skills that are talked about are ones we probably expect a little bit more. So intellectual curiosity, clarity about um, concepts. So being able to define things and be quite specific. So if we say we're talking about culture, we actually say what we mean by that. Uh, the ability to engage with alternative perspectives and new information. And then analytical skills around accuracy and attention to detail, critical engagement, plus because it's university, capacity for hard work and enthusiasm for history. I really <laughs> like the idea of enthusiasm for history as a, as a transferable skill for social work. Yeah. Because lots of people go into social work being interested in people. And when we say that, I think if we if we unpick that a little bit, what we probably find is that many people who are interested in people are actually interested in people's stories. They're yes. actually enthusiastic about history, mm. really, deep down. Yeah, Absolutely. So the thing that I thought was missing when I read this list initially was relational empathy. Mm. And this is where it gets a bit interesting because I think, like I said, although history is an art, it tries to be quite objective. Although we're increasingly accepting, aren't we, as, as, a, mm. as a species, that our objectivity is illusionary in various different ways. Um, yes. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that that um, kind of idea of um, relational empathy is what I would have referred, to, what you referred to above there is historical imagination and understanding, which we would take further, wouldn't we, into bounded empathy, the ability to recognise and understand the context of the emotions and experience of another person without taking on the responsibility or the distress. Mm. You know, and in children's services, we're often asked to take the lived life of the child into account in our work which for me is about using our understanding of the context and experience to construct a picture of how they experience life. So we're thinking, well, what is life like for other children in this area and how is this child's life similar or different and how is it helping them or not helping them based on what milestones that particular child needs to achieve? So there's a whole lot of evidence we're drawing from, but at the same time we are using our empathy, bounded empathy or imagination to try and understand the whole picture yeah and that really ties into the idea of bounded empathy it's it's the balance isn't it of the getting involved having a relationship with a person mm. in social work or a context or in the case of history getting getting involved in a past place or a different place um mm. but also having a boundary on that so that we're not so caught up in it that we're not able to be analytical and yes. there's a really interesting case that I looked at about his, historians and how objective they should or could be which was this reasonably famous case in the UK um, it was a trial of Irving against Penguin Books and Deborah Lipstad and what happened was that this in the early 90s Dr Lipstad wrote a book called Denying the Holocaust the growing assault on truth and memory and she discussed a number of specific Holocaust deniers, including David Irving, who was a historian, whom she called a dangerous spokesperson for Holocaust denial. And so Irving sued her and her publisher, which was Penguin, saying that his reputation as a historian was defamed. And there was a trial um, in 2000, and the judge actually handed down a judgment about whether Irving 
had been defamed as a historian or not, and actually Lipsad and Penguin won. And the re- the case all hinged on whether Irving had been unfairly criticised. Um, so had he acted like a historian ought to, and they'd said that he'd not, and therefore mm. they were wrong, basically. And that involved finding out how a historian should actually act. Mm. And what the judge found was that Irving had... Um, for ideological reasons, persistently and deliberately mis- misrepresented and manipulated historical evidence so that he could portray, in this case, Hitler favourably. And because Irving had significantly misrepresented and misused evidence, he hadn't acted as a historian should reason- reasonably be expected to do. And so the judge kind of had to say that an objective, fair-minded historian would follow partic- have particular qualities and follow particular practices and that they would... Um, they would be, for example, that they'd treat sources um, critically, that they wouldn't dismiss counter evidence without considering it, that they wouldn't cherry pick evidence, that they'd say when they were speculating rather than drawing on evidence, um, that they wouldn't mistranslate or mislead or omit bits of documents, and that they'd weigh up the authenticity of accounts and the sources and take the motives of historical actors into consideration. And so... The judge basically concluded that Irving wasn't an objective historian because he hadn't acted like a conscientious historian ought to. And when I read this, I thought many of those things that were expected are actually how we'd expect social workers to act. Because, of course, we've got our own issues about bias and ideological things that we bring to our practice. Um, And so trying to act like an objective, reasonable historian, conscientious historian is actually quite a good benchmark for us as well i think i think that's right i think these skills are really transferable uh, the tests are really transferable and i think if you think about the respectful skepticism that lord laming suggested children's social workers use in assessment of parenting capacity i thought the idea of appropriate reservation was more helpful language actually it just felt more healthy and it just felt like it was putting putting the burden on us intellectually to really make sure that we were being as ethically fair and as inclusive as we could be. Yeah, it's only appropriate reservations about people we speak to, where they're coming from, the the sources we read, the information that we're given, any any evidence really that comes to us. But it's also about us. And what we're leaping to and what we're thinking about, you know, we, our judgments, we should treat our own judgments with appropriate reservations. In other words, run them through, you know, this idea of have we been able to justify any speculation? Have we been even handed in the treatment of our evidence? So it's for both people to think about. That's what I liked about it. You know, and for me, I mean, Munro talks about common errors of reasoning and CP and Brandon in her serious case reviews, and they both talk about the need not to dismiss counter evidence without scholarly consideration and to be even handed in the treatment of evidence and not cherry pick. So I think the one that I like most is the historian must clearly indicate any speculation. I think we could do really well to do that. And I think that's it's interesting because we sort of have a process where we gather information and then we analyze it and say what our work is out and then we say our conclusion and then what might happen. Mm. And 
for me, I know that one of the things that I can do in my practice is that I can get to the point of, okay, I've, I've shown you my analysis and I've done my conclusion. And now I'm going to jump into some things that should happen, which are yeah. quite speculative. Yeah. This might work or this should work. But mm. you don't put, mm. present it as speculative. You tend to present it as yeah, quite yeah, definite. And you so don't think, say you know. why you think that. Mm. You, like you don't re really articulate, do you, that going to this program or doing this thing should mean da-da-da-da-da, like yeah. for these reasons. You just kind of write, as you say, actions, do this, why, when, for who. Yeah, and the yeah. idea that the action will inevitably lead to an outcome when actually yes, <laughs> or that you know, uh, a thing that you've learned yeah. will inevitably lead to a conclusion. And I think it's absolutely right to draw conclusions and to come to mm. some decisions about what should happen but I think indicating how confident yeah. we are in those conclusions and, and decisions would really help us yeah um, and yeah. you do the see decision... that in history books people say you know, that, you know having reviewed stuff this is what I think was going on in the 1300s but you know there was only there's only Piers Plowman to read so we, we, we can't be that confident and it's it's that level of confidence that I think is quite useful to share yes yeah, people, people deserve to be able to understand why we thought what we did or what they did would make what sort of difference. Yeah. So we're going to talk about um, some approaches and tools that help us with using history and social work. In children's social work, we're pretty good at looking at the past in our work, doing genograms, chronologies, taking family histories as a matter of course. But I think what we can learn from history is a rigour and impartiality to our approach. The idea of being an, objection, uh, an objective and conscientious explorer of the past, weighing what we're told against the evidence and the context that history offers us. And for me, that would include the surrounding social, economic and environmental factors that would have limited or increased people's options for a response to their own situation. Mm. Um, and so I'm dying to quote Shakespeare here, Jerry. You know, I, I, um, I can't believe we haven't quoted Shakespeare before in yeah, these podcasts. I know, so, it just like, feels that doing? way, doesn't it? Yeah, <laughs> but, you know, all the world's a stage and all the men and women merely players. They have their exits and their entrances and one man in his time plays many parts, his act being seven, seven ages. And I just love that because he goes on to talk about the development over the lifespan, which is another key skill in our work. We need to understand that man's not a stagnant thing, no matter his history or the stage of life he finds himself in. That that stage has as much impact as the time he's living in and the past he's lived through. So I think, I think you know, we are the sum total of our history, aren't we? Yes, I, I used to not like it that the first thing that was written about any in any referral seemed to be the age of the person, mm. because I felt like we were potentially really narrowing and I found right. myself narrowing. I was like oh so this person's 73 this person's 92 this person's 64 21 or whatever should mm. we be treating people differently on the basis of age and no we shouldn't be being ageist but yes we should because we need to understand where they are in their yeah. life story so that's yeah. made me think actually that grounding people in their time of life and the stage of life is fine so long as we don't then make loads of assumptions about what that might mean about who they are now as a result of that. That's exactly right. They lived life. There'll be some context that's had impact on them. And there's a the develop developmental stages have impact on you too. A child of three is not a child of 13, is not a young person of 19. The Life Course tool uh, is 
based on a um, it was a tool that I developed with research and practice for adults. It's based on a timeline tool that was done around people who'd used alcohol and it was to help understand their intake. Uh, essentially, what you do is you write down what happened over a period of time and include specific events during this period. And that's the thing that really interested me about it. So it makes sense, doesn't it, to kind of set out what's going on now, what was going on a month ago, three months ago, six months ago, a year ago, whatever. Um, what was happening and what the impact was and what was working and not working. But the thing that's quite useful as well about it is to say, what are the significant events in someone's life? Because once you know the anniversaries and the, you know, you can start to see patterns, can't you? If you look back, you mm. can see what you know, around Christmas it's tricky or at this kind of time of year or around this birthday or this anniversary of some sort. Uh, that's a really helpful way to think about even using a chronology, um, you know, because that's what we use chronologies for. It's a factual record of our involvement with a child and family um, or of the child and family's life, and it highlights the significant events in a child's life as it, as it occurs, both positive and negative. And we use it to spot patterns of behaviour or events that may be useful in building resilience, sustaining change, or maybe blocking or creating difficulty for people. Um, and the other things that we would use, I think the other one I'll highlight is, a, is life story work because this really is a living history tool used in children's social work to capture the past and the present for the future where thinking of the child as an emerging adult and imagining what it is that they will want to know about their own past and their own history. We're actively collecting stories, photos, significant events, mementos, as well as offering a faction, a factual, very even-handed chronology of the events that led to the child coming into care. Mm. And we hope to preserve the child's biological identity and their story, contribute to their sense of self and belonging, both to their family of origin and to the family who's raising them. It's a really profoundly important piece of psychosocial history that can promote self-esteem, a sense of belonging, and contribute to a person's identity as it shapes and forms over their lifetime. So for me, doing good life story work is one of the really critical things um, in children's services. Yeah, and increasingly that's being used with people who are living with dementia as a way yes. of helping them engage with memories and sustain identity. And, and work through the change in identity as well. Yeah, yeah, that's fantastic. So we were going to conclude and then go into our listener section, listener request section. So the, the conclusion, I suppose, from this is history is really important. It's about identity. And when we're trying to maintain our ethics of upholding someone's dignity and treating them with respect and treating them holistically, then history is an essential part of that work. And it's also a way of helping us to make better decisions and plans. And I think it has just a really broad human benefit that as we understand more people and more times and more contexts, we increase our overall understanding of humanity. Mm. Yeah, I, I, you know, I've gone on and on about how I think history is wonderful for offering a sense of place and time, a context into which the, we place the people we work with what was or was not possible, normal or allowed. Um, and I guess I wanted to demonstrate that in a little story. Um, and this is a story of one of my stories about my history because my wonderful mother who parented three children with 
all the love and compassion you could ask for, actually. Had another child that I never knew about. As a young Catholic woman in the 50s, she adopted out a baby girl, a person I now know as my big sister, but we didn't actually meet each other until we were in our 50s because my mum died keeping her secret. So my sister and I can never really understand what drove her to adopt out that little girl and how she managed to live her whole life as a parent to three other children without showing us that she had another child. We just can't imagine that. And we talk about all those stuff all the time. But, you know, if I look at history, I can maybe understand a little bit because society at those t that time wasn't set up for single motherhood. Catholic values at that time made it very hard for a young girl who fell pregnant to get support within or outside a family. Adoption was often the price you paid for having somewhere safe to live whilst you were pregnant and had your baby. So we can talk about those things and try to understand how the mother I know as loving could have left her firstborn. And it's not an answer, but history offers a context which can actually feel comforting to us. And the last thing I would say is we both know we have to treat all our speculations with appropriate reservation because actually we don't know that story because it's not available to us. So, so we're going to go into uh, our first ever listeners request section and we have this question, uh, what is our professional opinion, let's say mine and Joe's, on the gap between the Children Act and the Mental Capacity Act? And we don't, we're not experts on this mm. um, and we're taking it as if we were asked based on what we are, what we are who we are, um, not mm. as experts. So we do have some ideas which we want to kind of share with you. Yep. I suppose the first thing to do is just to set a little bit of context, which is that the Mental Capacity Act in England and Wales applies to people aged 16 and over. And actually it's been debated recently in uh, Parliament as to whether it should only apply from 18 um, for a particular element of it, which is deprivation of liberties. And the Association of Social Work in England, um, the UK Association, campaigned for 16 to 17-year-olds to be included. So the general kind of social work professional view in this country is that 16 17-year-olds should be treated as um, capacitated adults and therefore there needs to be some protection for them if they don't have capacity to make a decision. So children under 16, um, their views, of course, have to be heard, don't they? Absolutely. But they're not regarded in quite the same way as capacitated adults. Yeah, I, I think the thing for me, what, what we would say as children's social workers, is that we would mostly use the Gillick test to understand whether a young person is able to speak and decide for themselves. So the original test was designed to apply to medical treatment, but social work practitioners tend to use it to understand whether a young person is able to act independent of an adult decision maker in areas where the decision has big impact on the young person and is not bound by other legislation. And the Gillick test was developed in 1983 as a result of a court case and um, it determined that children under 16 can consent if they have sufficient understanding and intelligence to fully understand what is involved, 
including its purpose, nature, likely effects and risks, chance of success and availability of other options. So there's a real thing about helping children and young people understand the consequences and the alternatives of the decision they're being asked to make. And so most social workers, when they talked to young people, would keep this in mind. And if a child passed that test, then they're considered to be Gillick competent to consent. Now, in this case, it's to medical treatment or intervention. Mm. Um, but, and also in terms of the Mental Health Act, it, it may fluctuate from time to time. And this is a really important thing to remember is that um, young people may have more ability in one area than another to make good decisions. And so you'd have to make that decision based on a situational approach as well as on an overall competency approach. Yeah, the Mental Capacity Act um, applying to 16 year olds and above does have principles um, around a presumption of capacity and that includes if people's capacity fluctuates that you would make every effort to engage them in it, making a decision at a point where they're able to and you would also mm. consider contingency for when they might be incapacitated on a particular matter and that's where you have things like um, last in power of attorney. So I think it's interesting that we still we, we make the same professional effort with younger children Mm. Uh, to understand, to help engage them, help them understand information and weigh it up and make decisions. Um, but the when we decide that a child under 18 um, isn't able to make a decision for themselves, up to 16, as I understand it, we would we would that if that needed to come to court for a decision, it would come to the family court. And 16 to 17, it could either come to the family court or to the court of protection under the Medical Capacity Act. And there was a case that looked at which it should be, actually. So mm. this was a 17-year-old who had a severe learning disability um, and various other kind of uh, situations that impacted on her capacity. And threshold in care proceedings had been conceded. So my understanding is that that meant that there needed to be a court decision. Um, and it was a question about what order should be made. Mm. Um, and the judge needed to decide whether to make an order in the family court, um, a care order, or transfer to the court of protection. Basically asked some specific questions to decide which court would be best placed. So the first one is, is a child over 16 years old because the Mental Capacity Act doesn't apply otherwise? Um, does the child clearly lack capacity to understand the main decisions in the Children Act proceedings? And is this lack of capacity due to lifelong or at least long-term disabilities and therefore kind of not going to change, really. Mm -hmm. uh, can all the, deci the decisions that need to be made about child's welfare be resolved during their minority, so before they're 18? Because that would really affect, makes more sense then to keep it in family court, I guess. Yeah. Um, are the powers of court of protection more appropriate to resolve problems than the powers under the Children's Act? So which one su suits best, fits best? Mm. And can the child's welfare needs be fully met by the court of protection? So if we did transfer it, would that cover everything? And actually, the judge decided that the court of protection would work better, which I think was to do with the sustainability of the issues mm. and the fact that this was going to go on into adulthood. And therefore, this is awesome, the judge reconstituted himself as a judge of that court. So didn't right. transfer it as such, just put on a different hat. 
Yeah. As they just, I'm sure there was lots of paperwork. Um, yeah. But that, that was the way that it was responded. So I guess for us in practice, it's similar kind of questions, isn't it? Do you want to just say, because um, this is a case of B, isn't it, in brackets of local yeah. authority versus RM, MM and AM 2010. Um, just in case people want to look it up, that's all I was thinking because it is really interesting, Jerry. And once again, like you say, the questions are good questions, aren't they? Really helpful. Yeah, and questions are about what's best for the, the, for the child, which is brilliant. That's what you'd hope things yep. would be decided on. Um, yeah. So, yeah, we were thinking about sort of general advice, given that we're not experts in this area. I mean, one of the things that springs to mind for me is children's services really need to know the Mental Capacity Act if they're working in a jurisdiction where there is one that might cover yep. 16 and 17 year olds and the case law. Yep. And I think for me, um, independent advocacy, I know that we have CAFCAS, um, the children's views are sought by CAFCAS, but they're not acting as an advocate. Um, they're acting at, on behalf of the best interests of the child, which is different. Whereas sometimes young people may need an advocate and that someone to speak as their mouthpiece without having any opinion or decision-making capacity that can override that young person, just purely articulating their point of view clearly for the court processes. And I think that we should be thinking about that for 16 and 17-year-olds um, with mental health issues, especially um, if they are really against uh, some kind of treatment. I, th I think they have a right to have someone articulating without the best interest hat It's on. giving weight to the voice, isn't it? Yeah. That's right. Uh, and the other thing for me is just, just the join-up between adults and children's services. You know, adolescence is hugely volatile and changeable mm -hmm. and needs all the help it can get, really. So us as social workers working across that, that age between children and adults sharing expertise and also working with other agencies so that things aren't there's not this cliff edge um, mm. and it's not oh well now they're 16 so it's over to you or now they're 18 it's over to you or now they're 25 it's over to you it's just really trying to wrap around the person and talk to a lawyer if you're stuck or unsure yes lawyers are most definitely brilliant yep lawyers and advocates and and really listening to the young person just for what's inside them rather than what's legally or ethically or anything right. Does that make sense? Le letting their voice be really heard yeah. and just honouring that voice rather than kind of putting, but that's not in your best interest, hat on it straight away. Okay, well, let us know what you think of, of the listener's request and we will be happy to answer um, or talk about other questions. <laughs> um, <laughs> we'll give answer it our is, shot, is quite a big, yeah. a big goal. But we are really interested in hearing from people. And I know I didn't say at the beginning, but just in case um, people have forgotten we can, where we can contact it, anyone who wants to actually write to us. Um, or let us know what you think. You can do that by visiting our website, www.helpfulsocialwork.com, or by commenting on iTunes or on our Facebook page, Helpful Social Work Podcast. And if you've got any wisdom to add to that little bit, then please do. Thank you very much. Okay, see you later, Jerry.